Because oftentimes people tend to be extreme and extreme in their thinking. Well, I'm the most worthless person on the planet, or I'm the worst athlete, or I'm the worst competitor at this event, which is likely not true. And so to begin to challenge that and to say, now, wait a minute, like you said, BJ, <clears throat> take a step back and say, and, and, and reassess, is this really valid? And oftentimes it's empowering to know that it's no, it's, it's not true. It's not based in reality. So why would I choose to believe this if it's not based in reality? I live in the real world. Uh, and that's the way it starts is to begin to, 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 to challenge these things, to not let yourself really get away with this line of thinking or these beliefs. Okay, if you feel like you're a failure, well, let's look at that. Let's be vulnerable and say, okay, well, let's really dissect that. Let's explore that. Where is that coming from? And begin to gently challenge that. And for some people, that's very, very difficult because it's an ingrained belief that they've had perhaps sometimes even years or decades. And suddenly you're challenging their belief system. That could be a very scary thing. That was sports psychologist Merrick Dvorak, and this is the Yogi Triathlete Podcast, episode 67 of the YTP. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel like these weeks are flying by, especially since this one. I'm working all the post-production just the day after we launched episode 66 with Lucho. We're already getting really great feedback on that episode, so thank you for reaching out. Please share those same words in support of the show on Apple Podcast. We only have a few weeks left to reach our goal of 100 reviews by the end of August. We so believe in you guys to assist us in reaching this community goal. All right, but back to Lucho's episode. BJ and I have actually listened to this again already because we just can't get enough of Lucho Lovin. In my opinion, he's one of the very best coaches out there. And I believe BJ is the amazing coach that he is at Yogi Triathlete because of Lucho's willingness to share and coach and teach BJ over the years. But Lucho, much like our guest today, will be the first to tell you that when it comes down to it, it's you. You have to commit to do the work and then you have to do the work. It's the only way. There is no other way. So I'm diving in early this week because I'm hopping on a flight Thursday to Boston and will most certainly be leaving my laptop behind. I'm heading to Cape Cod for a full family immersion. I haven't seen my parents since BJ and I left on our Ride the High Vibe tour in June of last year. If you are not versed on our tour, you have to go back and start with episode one of this podcast where we announced the extreme life change that divinely landed us in Carlsbad, California. My family is fun for sure, but they're family. So my yogi triathlete skills will be awake and ready to tread every moment from a place of love. I've had to practice this over the years, believe me, and I'm still very much in practice, but it's my willingness to engage in self-study that is at the core of this practice, removing self-doubt all of the time, getting curious about thoughts, making space with breath to see the tendencies of my mind and constantly, constantly having a willingness to be vulnerable. Yeah, the V word, the one that I considered to be of the dirty four letter kind of words for many decades, but get ready because we use it several times in our conversation today with sports psychologist Merrick Dvorak. Merrick grew up in McLean, Virginia, the son of two doctors and sibling to an elite cyclist sister. He started swimming at the age of six and continued throughout his highly academic high school years. He went on to study biochemistry at the University of Virginia with a career in medicine on his life plan. 
until he realized that he actually wasn't that in love with the field of medicine after all. He took a teaching job post-college, which was rewarding, but not his passion. So while marinating in a sea of unknown, Merrick packed up and headed to Boulder, Colorado. The story ensues from here to once again show us the divine series of events that always leads to where we are supposed to go. Merrick is a firm believer in the benefits of meditation, especially for athletes, and understands the level of difficulty involved with sitting still in silence with our thoughts. This is an awesome conversation. There's so many takeaways. You guys, we are so grateful to Merrick for granting us this hosting opportunity and for all of you who are loyally supporting the show. We feel it, you guys, and we are committed to continuing to challenge ourselves to bring you authentic conversations that unfold from a place of presence. And a deep thanks to our Patreon patrons. We are getting in the flow to produce more content for you guys, and we hope you enjoyed the recipe that we shared from the soon-to-publish Yogi Triathlete Cookbook. All right, that's it. Let's now get into our convo with swimmer, triathlete, psychologist, and admittedly imperfect human, Dr. Merrick Dvorak. But we went to the DMV. To get our licenses? So did I. Yeah, but we made an appointment. You can make an appointment. Yeah, so you were one of those people waiting in that long line. It was crazy, but they. I think we saw like five people that day, because it's like one person will take your name, then sit down, and another person calls you, and they do this one job, and then we had to take a test. Oh, yeah, they surprised me with the test. I'm like, oh, my God, I have no idea. Like, what the speed limit is, 25, 15, it's like all this. What did you? I learned that you can drive with alcohol open in the car as long as it's in your trunk. What? (laughs) It's legal. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I don't know. Because you got to pull over to have a drink. And I actually got the one question I got wrong was the drunk driving question because I was so thrown off because I'm, I was so consumed. This is a good segue into talking about the mind, right? Yeah. So consumed with like people still do this. They still drink and drive. Like, they do? Is this still happening? A lot, actually. Yeah, so I'm like, well, okay, what's the smallest amount? Because I know if I had a glass of wine, I would certainly be impaired at the wheel, one glass of wine. Yeah. And so I just picked the lowest amount, and that was not the case. It was, I don't even know. I still don't. No, I think that's what I picked. It was, I don't know. But I got it wrong. But I passed. Good. That's the most important thing. Officially officially California (laughs) resident. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, but you were here in Boulder. Let's let's back up. Actually, let's back it way up. Sure. You grew up in Washington. I grew up in Northern Virginia. Yeah. Northern Virginia. Place called McLean, Virginia. So twenty minutes from the White House. Yeah. It sounds very. Yeah. McLean. Isn't that the guy in? um, Die Hard. Die Hard. Yeah. That's right, John McClane. <laughs> that's, that's it right. sounds very like Alexandria. Yeah. It sounds very much yes, that area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, do you have siblings? I do. I have one younger sister who's also a, uh, well, I wouldn't say also, but a high-level athlete. <laughs> so she just <laughs> retired from a pretty lengthy uh, career in cycling. Oh, cool. Okay. So she was a triathlete, uh, was a swimmer first, just like myself. So we started out with swimming and team sports and so forth. And then she gravitated towards cycling. 
in kind of early adulthood because injuries from running and all sorts of stuff mm-hmm. and complications forced her into that non-impact sport. And it turned out that she was actually pretty good at cycling. So she was actually on Team USA. So she went to the Women's Giro, won a, a stage of the Women's Tour oh, de France wow. and so forth. Nice. So she was really, you know, high-level performer. Where does she live? She right now lives in Southern Virginia, a little town called Crozet, which is just outside of Charlottesville, which is where the university is. So kind of the middle of nowhere. She lives there with her husband. Is she so, enjoying life? Oh, she loves it. Oh, yeah. she loves it like out she there. She was done. Yeah, she was done with the competitive part, yeah. but she still rides actually pretty well. Yeah. Still, and oh quite yeah, she'll frequently. never lose. No, that. just like you're never going to lose that. your swim. Yeah, oh, yeah those people man. that swim early. You know, I'm sure you know Nicole de Boom, right? Uh huh. Yeah. Yes. So she was racing. We haven't. I haven't seen her in a long time. And uh, I was one of her first like ambassadors for skirt sports, and uh-huh. and through skirt sports, we we were brought together with this really beautiful network of friends. That actually we came together yesterday at the Boulder Peak, which was super awesome. But Nicole was there, and she's in my age group, right? So she's racing age group. She hasn't done the Boulder Peak in years, mm. you know. And before she's won it four times, yes, and all of that, and. Um, Right before the swim start, this girl comes barreling past me, like, in the water. And I'm like, oh, that girl's, like, getting ready. I'm like, oh, it's the boom, of course. And she goes right up to the front, you know. She's, like, ready to go. And the gun went off. And I actually, like, waited a few seconds because I just wanted to see her swim. And I'm like, <laughs> damn her. Like, yeah. she's still got it. It's, yeah. She ended up winning the age group, of course. <laughs> but, yeah, you just you never lose that Yeah, stroke. you never really what lose that it? technique. It's like learning to ride a bike. You never kind of lose that feel for the bicycle. And I guess you never really lose that feel for the water. So did you start swimming young? Uh, I did. I did. I'd say I was about six or seven years old. Parents signed us up for summer league. So we learned to swim there and just kind of took off, took it more seriously during high school Mm -hmm. and more seriously being we would swim twice a day. So morning workout and go to school during the day and then an evening workout. Yeah. But uh, both Andrea, who's my sister and I, were involved in all sorts of extracurricular stuff. So we played soccer, we played uh, basketball, tennis, um, and we went to a magnet school for high school. So we were, you know, very much... You know, into academics as well. What's a mag- magnet? <laughs> a magnet school. Well, um, it has a focus. Our, our magnet school focused on science and te- technology. Okay. So uh, it's actually a school in Alexandria. So we actually had an extra period during the day. <laughs> so eight, <laughs> eight, eight periods. Because <laughs> I guess we didn't seven periods. They were just grooming you to be like an elite human. I, I, I suppose so. Well. <laughs> We are going to make him strong and smart yeah. and fast. So needless to say, we were quite busy during the day in high school. But we both enjoyed, you know, the, the push that uh, academics gave us and the push that athletics gave us as well. Well, there's there's <clears throat> this overlapping discipline yes. that you need for both. Oh, absolutely. Sure. And focus and concentration. What did your, parent, what did your parents do? Like, what, um, what kind of professions were they in? Um, my parents are both uh, medical doctors, physicians. So um, this is in your DNA to just well, I, I have, have I suppose some, yeah, just one, to have one some say like, that. yeah, have that discipline and get on a track and yes, yes. Although they were never really involved in high level sports, yeah, they are fit people and continue to be fit um, to this day. But they were never really competitive, uh, not to the level that my sister and I are. They still were. practicing medicine. Um, my father's newly retired mm. and enjoying retirement. And my mom, uh, is probably going to retire within the year. And what were their specialties? So my dad was an endocrinologist, uh, and both internists, so internal medicine. And, uh, my mom worked for Kaiser 
mm-hmm. uh, for 18 years, and then she switched over to the other side, which is the health insurance side. So she's a medical director for a health insurance company. Oh, and maybe bringing some some insight. <laughs> yes, yes, but uh, she's had enough of. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. was um so two physician parents? What was what was. Like, what was your nutrition like growing up? Was that any part of a focus? Or I'm I tell curious. you, it was very healthy okay. because I distinctly remember memories from grade school being very jealous of my classmates who had fruit roll-ups and chips and so oh, forth. And so I never, yeah, so good. <laughs> and I never had that in my lunch. Did you have that in your lunch? I had fruit roll-ups. Yeah. Oh my god, I would. Yeah. I, yeah. Would, I remember being at the <clears throat> supermarket begging my mother for yeah. double dogs, and she'd be like, "No, yeah, no, like yeah. we're not a double dog." F- I remember we're not a devil dog family. Okay. Yeah. We were. We had hostess. There's devil dog families? Like, where do they live? I want to go have dinner with them. So we should have apples and carrots. (laughs) Apples, carrots, yeah, fruits and vegetables. Yes, yes, yes. That's great. All right, so you're you're in the magnet school, and you're swimming, and where does this take you after high school? Do you swim in college? No, I did not swim in college. I was nowhere near the uh, level that I needed to be in terms of swimming to swim uh, competitively in college for a Division I school, and I went to University of Virginia, um, which is a very good swim school in a very good academic school, um, and I majored in biochemistry, thinking all along that I would follow in my parents' footsteps and go on to medical school, but lo and behold, things change, um, and I found myself after those four years not in love with medicine, so I really didn't know what I was going to do after those four years. Mm. Oh, we love this. <laughs> <laughs> not knowing no, how to place the baby. Not knowing, which I don't think is, is, is so abnormal for that 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 period in your life. So I dabbled in a few things. I ended up getting a teaching degree and, and taught in the public school system for a little bit, um, which was very rewarding, um, but it wasn't a passion of mine. Mm. Um, and so uh, after I finished teaching, after I got my master's in education and taught for a little bit, I moved at, actually to Colorado. I said to myself, well, before anything ties me down on the East Coast, let me you know, uproot my life and, and move out west. Why and Colorado? Specifically Boulder? Specifically Boulder, yes, because I had spent the uh, the previous summer, this was now the summer of 2003, with a buddy of mine out here mm. for six weeks. That'll do it. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I, I fell in love with the mm-hmm. place. And so I said to myself, my goodness, all right, if I have an opportunity to return, I'm going to jump on that and return. And I was very glad that I did. <laughs> so, so you just you saw a window in your life. You weren't falling in love with medicine, and you went for it. That's right. Did you have any resistance or from family members? No, no. You know, my parents have always been supportive. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people often have asked me and continue to ask me, did your parents push you into medicine or anything like that? And the answer is no. They really didn't. Um, I think I put that pressure mostly on myself. Um, and there, I think I projected their expectations onto myself as well. But no, they, they really did not uh, push me into medicine. Th- their refrain was, well, whatever makes you happy. <laughs> well, which is which is all great. But when you're at that age, you really don't know what makes you happy. Right. And that's even harder. You know, it's yes. even harder when you have the freedom to to use your will to, you know, find your passion and, and follow right. it. So you come out to Boulder. How old are yeah. you at this point? I am 24 or 25 years old. And is this where triathlon enters your life? This is where triathlon really enters my life, yes. Um, I had competed in a few events on the East Coast. Actually, a funny story. Uh, my sister actually <laughs> signed me up for my first race because I was all talk. Right. You know, so she called back you on then. It. Yeah. So she actually called me up on it or called me on it and uh, 
she had registered me for a local race. Um, goodness, it was in Virginia Beach, I believe. And I didn't have a choice but to go. You know, the registration fee was paid for. I was entered. And I said, well, may as well just show up and do it. And that was my first experience with the swim, bike, and run. And how was it? Do you remember how it went Well, down? I got lost on the run. <laughs> <laughs> Because you were so, so far out so, by yourself? So far <laughs> out, yes. Um, and I fell on the bike. There was a 180-degree turnaround around a you know orange cone. And I fell, I think, going two miles an hour. <laughs> and fell like a total, you know... Uh, newbie. N- newbie. Yes, yes. And God the, forbid anybody know. God forbid anybody yeah. you know. Yes, I, I got the sympathy applause as I struggled to unclip. <laughs> And then remount. The whole process took about two minutes or so. But needless to say, I did finish. And I um, I guess I was very much intrigued yeah. by it. And uh, intrigued by not only the challenge, the competition, um, but by the way those three sports could push me. Each one has, I think, its own separate and unique challenges. And so I enjoyed that. And I always thought I was relatively good endurance athlete endurance individual so i thought okay well maybe you know i have you know a little bit of talent in this area let's let's go explore that and so you get here to boulder and how do you how do you first get introduced to the scene because i mean it's kind of hard not to get into we came out here to snowboard and Mm -hmm. that might have happened twice Yes. Because we got right into triathlon. Yes. Well, it helped being out here with my friend the summer before. And we met a bunch of people by swimming at Skull Carpenter mm-hmm. Pool, with the local long course mm-hmm. pool. And at that time, you showed up to 7 o'clock a.m. practice, uh, Jane Scott's Jane. workout. I just went to her workout. She's still yeah. doing it. So yeah. like, <laughs> and it was like the who's who of triathlon. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would look across the pool and I would recognize, you know, all these people that I had seen in magazines that I'd heard about, really legends, and I was seeing them in the flesh. And I was like, yeah. this is really, really cool. Really cool. And yeah. so, you know, you learn that these are humans just like you and I, and they're approachable, and they like to talk, and they're friendly, and they're open. Um and so we got to chatting and they, they invited us to group rides, you know, group runs, social functions. So that's kind of how we got plugged into the triathlon scene. And then how long did you race for here? Well, I, I attempted to do the elite thing. Um, I would tell you, the both of you that I'm, I wasn't very focused in terms of being disciplined with my training. I never really followed a training plan. I'd always do what felt good. And I would always be one to push myself a little bit too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I tried to race elite for a couple years. Um, so I did the non-drafting, or I'm sorry, the drafting races as well as the non-drafting. Um, I did a couple 70.3s. Well, back then they weren't 70.3s. No, they were <laughs> and just I the said, old long course. The old long course. I said, my goodness, that's such a long distance. I don't know if I could hack it with, you know, hack that. So I stuck to the Olympic distance and shorter events. So, But at some point you're making a shift to yes. go back to school. <clears throat> that's correct. What's happening with that? Well, the entire time that I, from the entire time that I moved to Boulder, I was never really a full-time athlete. I always had a job. Having a teaching background, I, you know, got a substitute teaching license and would substitute teach. Um, but the first real break that I got in terms of a, having a, a job, I think that really exposed me to psychology and kind of how the mind works in, in com- competition and athletics from a coaching uh, perspective is I was a coach of the uh, the CU, the University of Colorado Swim and Dive 
um, swim team. Uh, it was a rec team, or it was a club team, I should say. But unlike University of Virginia and my previous experiences with club sports, they took their club sports very seriously. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we had a team of, I'd say, 80 to 100 swimmers, and we had regular practice times, and we had swim meets that we would go to. So very, very serious. And um, they took achievement and they took uh, performance and competition very seriously. And so they hired me as a coach, I believe, I want to say 2006 or five. Um, and yeah, that was, uh, that was a great experience for me. But what, so what were you seeing in those athletes that was starting to spark this curiosity of um, maybe taking it a little bit further, like the psychology of the sport? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I came into it you know, relatively naive. Well, let's just give them a training plan. Yeah, because I was going to say, as a coach, <laughs> yes, I was a massage therapist, and it's you're never. It's never just yes. working the muscles. Yes, well, <laughs> There's always so much more. When 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 they brought me in to, to to interview me for the position, they had given me the prior workouts of the prior coaches and so forth, and I was you know needless well. There's no other way to say it but surprised as to how little they were doing. So I was like, okay, well, I'll just rework their training plans. You know, they need to do be doing much more volume, a little bit more intensity, kind of introduce a concept called periodization, mm. <laughs> you know, into their training plan. And, you know, I would probably see some results. That was my thinking. But lo and behold, after the first few practices, I, I noticed that swimmers were coming up to me and talking to me about, things that were sometimes not even related to swimming, the stress that they were feeling from school. They would perhaps say, oh, Merrick, I can't make practice um, because I have such and such test or I have this thing going on in my life. And, the, you know, they, it was really, they were coming to me for, I would say, advice or support and direction. And that's when I thought, my goodness, wait a minute, there's a whole other side to this coaching business that I need to pay attention to and really increase or get my skills up. Um, and so that was my first kind of experience in seeing, well, the mental aspect of competition. Were you pulling from your own experience as an athlete to try and relate to them? Or did, did you not, I guess what I'm asking is like, did you feel as though like, oh, yeah, I've struggled with that, too? Or mm. was your kind of career a little bit different where mm -hmm. <clears throat> you were just kind of focused and disciplined and you just kind of got it done and whatever needed to get done, you got it done. And maybe there wasn't so much going on extra that was really messing with your mind or I guess. Right. Yeah. Like, was this pulling anything up within you so that sure. uh, were you pulling from your own experience to help them navigate. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And at that point in my life, I had really no formal psychology training. So I would rely on, well, this worked for me. Right. It therefore must work for Swimmer oh, X. Of mm. course. And so, you know, as you learn, and I, I learned this, you know, really by, by trial and error, well, that doesn't always work. You know, not everybody is the same. You know, surprise, surprise. And this has become certainly a theme as I've progressed into, you know, my profession as a psychologist is to understand those individual differences and to be very appreciative of that. So, but that was my first experience into, okay, well, gosh, I was able to perhaps do such and such. Why can't this person do that? And then when that didn't happen, you know, I would either have to reassess, okay, or 
maybe, you know, have some feelings of self-doubt creep in. Well, maybe I'm not as good of a coach as I thought I was. Um, why isn't this swimmer responding? You know, sometimes these questions I couldn't even answer at that point in my life. But I remember being challenged in that way, which was very unexpected. And I remember also one thing that was also very powerful and that I, and that I kind of learned. And one of it was just, just to listen, the power of just listening and being there for just, just support and understanding and to demonstrate that understanding. That was very powerful. I think one of the things that I certainly could have re- could relate to with the swimmers was anxiety, competitive anxiety, you know, performing at swim meets when needed or when asked. Um, because several of my swimmers really were quite anxious before competition and would sometimes not swim up to their ability uh, because anxiety got in the way. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, to deal with the consequences of being disappointed <clears throat> after that um, was also something that we dealt with. So prior to your formal training in psychology, what were some of the things that you were working with them on the anxiety based on your experience? Like mm-hmm. what were some of the <clears throat> techniques? Sure. Well, we tried to simulate a lot of the anxiety evoking stimuli or events in practice. So for example, we tried to mimic what's a, what's a competitive atmosphere? What's the swim meet like? You know, what does it feel like? And we tried to replicate that in practice. So when the swimmer would get to the competition, it wouldn't be a complete surprise. And I do think that I, I, w- I mentioned back then even, you know, visualization. Yeah, I was going to say it was almost like a physical visualization. Physical visualization. Right? Yeah. Yes, yes. And the way that I would do that is at the end of practice, I would line up some swimmers and have them do a time swim off the blocks for time with everybody watching. Sometimes I would add a little bit of pressure. So if so-and-so does time, mm-hmm. whatever, you guys don't have to do the next set. Or we actually get to end practice early. So just to add that little stress, of course, I would try to do that with swimmers who I believe could handle that. Sometimes I wasn't always correct. <laughs> um, but, but yes, to kind of mirror that in a visualization kind of way, well, not it's not really visualization, but like it's you said, it's not. But it's 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 almost it's like tr- training the subconscious in right. a it, way. It's, it's practicing. Right. It's practicing kind of and arousing those 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 feelings of anxiety or those you know distressing feelings. So when they come up, when it really matters, like in a swim meet, they're perhaps a little bit more familiar. They're like, oh. I've already done this. I've already There's done this. There's a part of me that's already done this. Yes, and it's yeah. and it's very powerful to know, not only have I already done this, but gosh, I've been successful right. when these things have popped up. Yeah, and that's super helpful. And, and I'm sure you're familiar with some of the science behind, like speaking specifically about visualization. That, yes. That seeing yourself do it prior to Absolutely. it actually being done, you have a greater chance of success, mm-hmm. at least what they've seen with Absolutely. With seeing yourself succeed. Yes, and, and it takes practice. You know, because I think changing belief as well is part of visualization. If somebody believes, well, I can never swim this time or I can never perform well at a high performance swim meet. Well, if you visualize yourself doing that and you then you practice that visualization, well, then perhaps you may just start to believe that, my goodness, maybe I can actually do this. Mm -hmm. And that's a very, very powerful Mm -hmm. thing. And stop using those words. I can't. Do this. Exactly. I don't think I can because you know, that just is reinforcing your story of absolutely negativity. Yeah, and the language that you use 
is extremely powerful because it influences your thoughts. It influences really everything, your behavior and so forth. And it's the narrative by which you live. So if you say to yourself, I can't or I won't, well, you're likely correct. You can or you won't rather than, well, I may, maybe I just can, right? And that small shift in language, you know, semantically, it's very nuanced and small, but it's a powerful, powerful thing. Because if you think about if, if you're somebody who is, well, and we all have a tendency to be, I, I think we live in a world that conditions us mm. in this, in a negative way that there's doubt and there's, there's unworthiness and I'm in a state of lack because I need all these things. Right. And so it's no, it's no surprise that a lot of us deal with this kind of unworthiness or yeah. anxiety or negativity, but the beliefs that we have about ourselves, it's just because we've practiced those beliefs. Yes. So if we practice the other way, would you agree that mm -hmm. we can kind of change that? Yes, absolutely. That fault line. Yeah. And that's the good news is that beliefs are changeable. Yeah. <laughs> some are harder than others, but I would also say, Jess, that somewhere along the line, you learn these things, right? You learn from experience. So perhaps a person had a bad experience in a competition. And so he or she learns, gosh, I'm not good at competing. Mm -hmm. And if this happens early on in life, you're imprinted. And the younger you are, the more vulnerable that you are to these experiences. And if those things go unchallenged, then they become your reality. Well, I'm just the person that doesn't do well in triathlons. Or I'm just the person that doesn't swim in swim meets. And that becomes a, a fact. Even though it's not really a fact, you've just made it a fact by believing in it. Yeah, so it's... Um BJ and I both work with a meditation teacher and he says to me a lot, like, choose mm. every word. Yes. Choose every word that you speak. Like, be really, really careful about the words that you're using mm -hmm. because they have so much power on uh, what we believe about ourselves or the world that we live in. and yeah. our, What others believe about us, too. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And that's the, the self-talk and that's kind oh. of a buzzword in... Yes. In, in sports psychology as well. The self-talk. The self-talk. When I teach a yoga class, I'll say often, or I, I hear myself say often as I'm teaching, you know, there's two classes going on. The one that I can see, mm. and then the one that's going on in your head. Right. And that's the one I cannot see. And that's the one that really, really is the one you want to pay attention to, right? Yes. Like, I'll watch your bodies, make sure you're safe. But, you know, you can, I'm not going to be impressed by how bendy you're. I, I could care less mm. what any of it looks like. Yeah. It's what's going on upstairs and how we're navigating that. That's, that's what's going to transform the way you move through the world. Yes. Yeah, yes. everywhere. Yeah. Okay, so you're getting this introduction to, okay, it's way more than just writing up training plans. Way more and than that. tapering them and yeah. bringing yeah. the, you know, the excitement of a periodized training plan to the school. So where does the shift start to happen when you're like, oh, I really want to kind of get into this, dig into this a little bit more? Mm. Well, um, so I, I coached there for about two and a half years or two and a half seasons. Uh, and then, you know, I, you get to this point in life where you start to self-reflect. You know, where do I want to go? Where have I been? Where am I? And, you know, those have always been or those had always been uncomfortable periods in my life, you know, um, because I am a person who likes to know. Mm. I'm a planner. I want to know what the future is. As much as I could forecast something, I want to forecast it, even though I know it's, it's largely impossible to do that. But I started to reflect on my life at that point. Um, I know, knew I enjoyed certain things, and those certain things were um, interacting with people, 
building relationships with people and having something unique and challenging happen to me on a daily basis. And I found that those things were present in counseling psychology, that these, these relationships, these challenges are present in therapy, in a therapeutic relationship. Um, and so that sparked an interest in me. And so I decided to apply to graduate school. Before I applied, I took you know, all the prerequisite courses at the, the university here at, at CU so that I could apply <laughs> so that, that my resume didn't look completely barren because uh, I'd majored in chemistry and so nothing really was, was translating over into psychology and was fortunate enough to get accepted into the University of Northern Colorado because I knew I wanted to say local. So I applied to local programs and they're one of the two in the state with the counseling psychology program. And so, you know, once I got in, thankfully, uh, to that program, I thought I was set. You know, I thought I was, once I was on that track, let's just kind of grit your teeth and, and, and put your nose to the grindstone and grind it out. And you were up in Fort Collins, right? No, oh, I, this was Greeley. Oh, Greeley. Yes, this was right. Greeley. Yes, That's yes. That's Greeley. I've never been up to Greeley. Um, <laughs> it's it's um, quite flat. Yeah. Not too picturesque. You know, I'm sorry if you're from Greeley. <laughs> but uh, compared to Boulder and the mountains, not a lot of visual stimulation. So you can focus on your schooling. You can focus on your schooling, right? Yes. That's one way to put it. <laughs> yes. So how long was the program? Tell us about what you needed to go through sure. to get to um, So it was a doctoral program. I came in there with uh, without a master's degree in the psychology fields. So it took me five years to get the doctorate degree. Uh, and then a year of postdoctoral work is required to get your license and to practice as a licensed psychologist. And each state has different licensing requirements. But in general, they require about 2,000 hours of work or one full calendar year of working under supervision uh, to, to fulfill the requirements of the postdoctoral year. And once you have that, you take the licensing exam. Hopefully you pass that and you're, you're good to go. And then that had you out in California. Yeah. So, yeah. So, well, I did my internship in Kansas, uh, Kansas State University, uh, which was a very interesting experience in and of itself, coming from the East Coast, living in Boulder, uh, going to a place like Manhattan, Kansas, uh, very conservative, a large military presence. It's just a very interesting experience for me in general. So you're doing your internship there? My internship there, yes. Mm. Yes. And that was a full year as well. Uh, and then once that was completed, I um, I went to California, to San Luis Obispo for the postdoctoral year. Where <laughs> night and day. Completely night and day. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I remember flying into San Luis Obispo. Uh, in their little small regional airport, and I looked outside the uh, the plane window as I was landing. I saw the oceans on one side, the ocean on one side, and mountains on the other. And before the plane touched down, I said, man, I hope I nail this interview. If I get <laughs> offered a position, I am totally taking it. Yeah, it's a super cool <laughs> oh, town. Oh, gosh, it, cool. it was so cool. It's a cool town. And there's a, and yeah, there's the, the college. The there. college, so that's, yes. Is that where you That's worked? where I worked, yes, mm -hmm. yes, at Cal Poly, which was a wonderful experience. And at that point in my my life, Jess, I never thought I was going to return to Colorado. Mm. So there's been seminal moments in my life. I never thought I would leave the East Coast. Lo and behold, I left the East Coast, moved to Boulder. And then once I left Boulder, I never thought I would return. Um, but lo and behold, here I am. But no, so I, I spent a year in, in San Luis Obispo, got my, uh, got my postdoc year done, got my license and took my first job 
Outpost School in San Diego, Escondido. Escondido's, yeah, yes, yeah. which is about 15 miles east direct e- yeah. like east, east of, of where we live. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. so you used to swim at the same pool that we swim at now. That's correct. So you know That's cor- and I missed that pool. I know. It's, <laughs> but which one? You know, there's two. There, there, yes. In the wintertime, you go in the cold pool, right? Yes. And it's only about... 60 mm-hmm. outside you go in the you go in the warm pool, warm pool and then the summertime you can go in the hot in the um in the cool and they pool. switch it around to 50 meters <laughs> yes that's like right Tuesday, wednesdays and thursdays yeah, it's yes amazing it is there. amazing it's pretty pretty unbelievable. so tell us about do you have any experiences that stand out because i'm just thinking about just the dynamic experiences you must have had from working in kansas then mm-hmm. working in san luis obispo and then working in san diego mm-hmm. Without, of course, getting into detail and revealing people or anything like that, any experiences that you had or the differences in working with people in those areas? Or did you find similarities, like a core similarity between working with all these different types of people in these very, very different energetic uh, mm-hmm. atmospheres like the the energy in Manhattan Kansas has to be yes. so different than yes. the energy in San Diego or in San Luis Obispo. Yeah. Well, I think one thing about this profession. Uh, specifically that I found is you could tell, or at least I could tell pretty quickly um, uh, who are the ones that care, who are the ones that really care about their craft, about their profession and about the people that they're seeing. And, you know, that's the most important thing. And Jess, that's the one thing that I learned as a swim coach is the other that I didn't mention is about the relationship that one has with your athletes or with your patients or with your colleagues. And that is the one thing I think that transcended those three locations is I would gravitate towards the people that really demonstrated that caring, that empathy for other folks. Mm -hmm. And that was to me readily apparent. Um, And so that was one thing that kind of transcended those three areas. And I think when you have that, with that comes a patience, a patience to learn one story. And if you have that, you could be sitting across from a farmer in Kansas, or you could be sitting with a um, tech person in California, it doesn't really matter. If you take the time to understand their story, you eventually likely will. So would you say that you're developing uh, during this period of your life, like a mass level of compassion? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Just, you know, for the human condition, you know, um, I would come home sometimes after some days and I say, my goodness, I can't even make up what I just experienced today, you know, from somebody's story or somebody's, you know, case or or issue problem. And I would just say, my goodness, I didn't even think such a thing was possible. Mm -hmm. And part of me would be Part of me would be, uh, there would be a sense of admiration. My goodness, how did this person make it so far? How does this person even survive? And part of it would, it would be, you know, a more negative emotion like sadness and feeling, like you said, just that compassion. Um, But you learn in the profession that sometimes that can get in the way of, of your work. And that's, that's one of the things that they, that, that we were taught is you kind of learn how to tone down the volume on that kind of stuff to not let maybe your own personal baggage get in the way. If something or someone triggers something within you, you know, there's certain things that you do to minimize that. And in worst case scenario, refer them to somebody else. Yeah. Are you familiar? I'm sure you've heard Eckhart Tolle. I'm just thinking about the pain body right now, how the pain and and being in this, in this, 
profession, hmm. like there's a lot of pain bodies and they want to engage with your pain body, right? And then it's, so it's how do you work? What are, what are some of the things that you do, like if triggered to uh, allow that energy or whatever that is, emotion, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, to move through you mm-hmm. as opposed to, yeah, you know, like, absolutely. oh my God, how am I going to do this? But kind of healing it yourself, seeing that it's an opportunity for you to heal. Yes. Because you're human too. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I think the first thing is acceptance. Uh, and an awareness that that's going on and an acknowledgement that that's going on. And I think if you make that overt through acceptance, it becomes a lot easier because through acceptance, you find, I think, liberation. You stop fighting for control. You stop, you know, feeling tense or even paralyzed uh, by these things. And you make it alive. You make it salient. And in my profession, you, you talk through it. You know, that's that the crux of talk therapy. Really, what do we do? We only talk for 50 to 60 minutes, really. And people say, well, it's just talk. Well, it's, yes, it is just talk, talk, just talk, but it's very powerful. And so to work through these feelings, you know, um, sometimes you consult with your colleagues. Um, and at that point in my life, when I was in school and in training, I would consult with supervisors. And I would come and I would say, well, such and such case, this is what I was experiencing. And this is the hard time that I was having with this, or this is kind of maybe an obstacle that's in the way uh, and maybe not making me as effective as I, as I could be. That's super vulnerable. Absolutely. It's super vulnerable. Right? And, and you gotta be vulnerable <laughs> in this profession. You gotta be vulnerable. And that's what I learned, uh, as a swim coach, uh, is I saw a lot of tears and I wasn't really used to that. You know, when I would see tears as a, as a youngster, either there was a death or I was really, really hurt or something kind of calamitous had happened. Um, and that's that's what I associate. Well, if those things happen, that's when you cry. Well, not always. Right? right? When there's so much built up and yes. stuck and not able to move, yes. it will yes. it will find a way to move yes. through rage or absolutely. tears or whatever I think sports that brings be. that up a lot because oh, you're absolutely. tapping into that elevated state. You know, as you're pushing harder and yes. harder, it just kind of ignites something inside, and, mm-hmm. and you may question it. I, I can speak from experience. Just, like, just you're like, what? Why is that coming up? Like, I'm just Absolutely. watching a movie and <laughs> yeah. training hard, and yeah. like, what's happening? Yeah, yeah. And I think because people are so invested because they care and it matters to them, you know. And so, if if, if something that matters to you, you get disappointed. There's a sadness with that. You know, I mean, if you're an emotional person, yeah, you're going to be affected. And to display that sadness, I think, is a very natural thing, be it through crying. Some people express it in different ways. Sometimes it's anger, you know, or, you know, or less healthy ways, for example, substance Mm -hmm. use and so forth. But absolutely, you're going to be invested or you're going to be affected by things that you are invested in, especially emotionally, be it competition or anything else. And so are you working with athletes at this point? I am. I am. I'm working with a number of athletes. Yeah. Right. I, I guess I'm talking about when you were kind of going through these internships and stuff. Yeah. 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 I, um, there would be athletes that would come through the door every once in a while. Um, and sometimes, you know, it, it's interesting. Sometimes they would present as an athlete, you know, by present, I mean, I would get the intake form and so-and-so student athlete. Okay. But... Sometimes the issue wasn't really athletic. Sometimes it was, you know, another mental health issue, you know, that was affecting, by the way, their athletic performance and, 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 and practice and so forth. But it wasn't always competition, you know, stuff that was 
right. talked about, but both were. Well, and, and I mean, we've been triathletes now for 12, 13 years. And, you know, I, I've seen a lot of different athlete types working with them in the massage mm. table. And then BJ is a coach and I work with them on mindfulness and teaching meditation. Uh, wonderful. Wonderful. Oh, good. And it's when you were saying like, we talk for 50 or 60 minutes, like a lot, like they're like, well, what, what are we just going to like stare at each other on the Skype screen and like <laughs> meditate? Like, what are we doing? And it's yeah. like, I have no agenda, you know, let's sure. just turn on the call and it's always amazing because it just it's like whatever needs to come up is coming up right. and then we sit with that uncomfortableness and meditation yes. and see how we can you know um just let it be there yeah. just let it be there but bj i kind of have a question for you that will then take a question into merrick like with your athletes or not just specifically your athletes but athletes you've coached in the past and things like that what are the common threads of blockages or walls that you are finding that they're coming up against? I, th I think, I think number one is they just, they, they have a doubt that they can't, that they can't do it. Mm -hmm. So I give them the workouts and they will look at it and, and sort of look at the whole big thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas I really like to put it down into pieces. And one of the things I do, I don't give plans like out outward. Like I don't know how people are going to feel. So I like to cut it down to like two or three day segments and, and constantly check in with them to see like how this is working out. And there's there's a lot of resistance there um, because they want to see the whole the whole system. Because yeah. they want to know. They want to know. They want to know. And I'm sure it, it may not work with us. <laughs> but uh, but I think it's good for them and and they start to to dive deeper into why they need to have that that plan out there. Yes. Like when we work with our athletes, I'm I'm finding. It's much. It's same as you. It's much more than just the plan. It's like let's dig deeper into these areas that you you have self doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, you have family life um, time commitments. You know, one of the first questions I ask is how much time do you have to train? How much right. actual time do you have to train? Not your wish. You know, like you can't train three or four hours every day. You have a family and there's other commitments and stresses. So, how much time do you really have? And. Another another blockage, I think, is the yoga part of it because we really incorporate yoga and mindfulness into it. And if they have a set number of hours, and I'm cutting back a run or a bike to to allow for yoga and meditation, there's definitely resistance there. Mm. But again, that's just something they haven't been experienced with. You know, right. it's just their story of like, I, I can't sit quietly. Would you want me to sit quietly for 15 minutes? I can't do it. Well, that's the reason why you need to do it. The right. exact reason. So we sort of take those fears and sort of accentuate them and sort of sprinkle them in there a little bit more and more yes. to, to give them that real life experience of how am I going to deal with it? Yes. How am I going to deal with it? Yes. And so we'll show them how, like we have conversations with them. It's just, it's just not about the, you know, 10 minutes at Z4 and then you recover for five minutes. It's like, well, how did your dinner go with your husband? Like on exactly. your anniversary. Great, that's awesome. So take the take the day off from training and really absorb that experience. Right. Like, don't sweat missing workouts. I think that's I think that's a pretty good um, roundup of our athletes. Yeah. So I guess um, from that, like the the self doubt and and I know that everybody is so individual, but. The athletes and the people who are listening to this are human, and we all have self-doubt. Absolutely. And so how do you, how would you, like in a blanket way, kind of speak to that? Mm -hmm. Well, I've experienced self-doubt, and you know, this is something just that I would say comes up to me on an almost daily basis. 
you know, a new patient or client walks through my door, there's a thought, well, will I be able to effectively treat this individual? And I think, <coughs> excuse me, having self-doubt is in fact healthy because it helps with motivation. It helps, I think, keep us on our toes um, because I think if one had no self-doubt, I, I, I think that that would not be good mm. um, because we all have our faults and we all, we're not perfect beings. Um, but the way to, I think, address or one of the ways to address the self-doubt is first of all to acknowledge it and then to face it head on and to understand, you know, where is this coming from? Because oftentimes, and I mentioned this earlier, it's rooted in something that's not entirely true. It's rooted in a, perhaps a past experience, maybe a negative experience, most likely. Okay, fine. You're allowed to have negative experiences, but it's a powerful thing to know that just because it happened in your past does not necessarily predict the present, nor does it predict the future. And that's an important thing for people to realize and understand. And, you know, link to self-doubt are, you know, too, too loaded, too, too kind of very detrimental things to performance, and I'd say life in general, and those are anxiety and depression. You know, if you feel that you can't do stuff, you're likely to be a little bit more anxious when that stuff comes up, and you're likely not to feel super positive about who you are. Um, and so I see actually a lot of that when, when people come to me with sometimes even crippling, you know, feelings of self-doubt. But working through that, acknowledging it, and to say, hey, you're not the only one with a self-doubt. And sometimes it's powerful, you know, to self-disclose, you know, as a therapist, well, you know what? I have self-doubt too. And I'm like, wow, really? And I was like, yeah, of course, I'm human, just like you. You know, and sometimes that, that could, just to mention that is a very powerful thing. Well, here's this guy who I'm seeing as this expert guy who, you know, some people think I have everything figured out. And I'm always surprised to, 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 to hear this from people. And I, I would say, well, you know, I, I have figured a few things out in my life, which is true, you know, but you know, I don't always have it figured out, right? Because I'm human. But I've learned through experiences and what I try to convey, I've learned that I'm more likely to figure things out because I have that, that confidence now that I've done it in the past. Not everything is doable, but you know what? Maybe a lot of things are and I'll try to figure it out. And if I fall short, you know what? I've learned to be okay with that. So here, here it comes up again. That's <clears throat> really vulnerable. Absolutely. Somebody's walking into your office because they're like, he's the expert, yes. right? We, you've got these credentials, so you're the expert. And then all of a sudden you're sitting across from them saying, yeah, I, I have that very similar thoughts. Right. And so I used to think, past tense, that vulnerability, um, and I think this was a big ego mechanism to keep me where I was in a state of just really deep suffering. I'm sure we could have a long, long talk, Merrick. <laughs> was I thought vulnerability was weakness, and and um, and so I know like to to think to not only to avoid being vulnerable at all costs. I mean, I was so far away from it. I didn't even know how I would get there. But then when I would see it in other people, I would judge it. And I would mm -hmm. say, oh, that's weakness. Yes. So what do you have to say? Because you're just, you're very, oh, obviously you're on the other side of it. Right. On the other side, meaning that it doesn't mean that you don't get feelings that go along with vulnerability, but you're able to mm -hmm. still put yourself there. And Absolutely. I have found in my own transformation that vulnerability is where it's at. Absolutely. It's where it's at. It's that's where I am my most powerful. Like, I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. And and I never, ever would have said that 
uh, 15 years ago, right. no way, because then it would be, well, if I don't know the answer, then they're going to think that I don't know what I'm doing, then they're never going to come back, and then I'm going to go out of business, and then I'm going to, nobody's going to like me. And it was this whole big negative self-talk. So yeah. what do you have, what was your experience with vulnerability? Well, I, I come from the same line of thought that, that you did, right? Vulnerability is a weakness. I'm not going to show it especially to strangers that I don't know, especially in certain situations like a competition, you know, but I've learned uh, through the profession that, like you said, Jess, vulnerability is a, a key ingredient to change. <clears throat> um, but certainly one is not vulnerable immediately in any kind of setting. I think it takes some time to feel safe. It takes some time to feel that you're able to open up and to be vulnerable in a safe environment. And what's a safe environment? Well, an environment where you don't feel judged or criticized um, or, you know, that somebody will actually validate your feelings. And that's a powerful thing. But no, I, I view vulnerability as a strength. You know, I think showing weakness and talking about your weakness is in fact a strength. Um, because everyone has those and everyone is vulnerable because we're all human. And that's the fab and that's the commonality that we all have. Um, and so I think opening yourself up to that vulnerability, yes, it's uncomfortable. And yes, it's awkward. It's so uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. But with time, it gets less so. And I'm not saying, yeah. well, you should be just an open book and vulnerable to any, everybody. Absolutely not. No, because there are people that will take advantage of that. There are people that will hurt your feelings. Absolutely. We live in <clears throat> sometimes a very cruel world. But there's a time and place for being vulnerable. And I think... Sometimes it starts with just yourself and just self-reflection, perhaps through, um, you know, meditation or perhaps through mindfulness or perhaps through a moment of, of just stillness and quietness. Yes, your mind is working. You kind of reflect and you think about things and you allow, you know, these things to come up and you allow specifically kind of um, emotions to come up, sometimes unpleasant ones. And so I think that's where you kind of... Uh, being vulnerable begins. Mm -hmm. You're vulnerable with yourself. And I think if you're vulnerable with yourself, so you could share that vulnerability with somebody like a therapist or <clears throat> a coach or somebody who's close to you. So we've thrown around the word meditation a couple mm -hmm. times and mindfulness. Yes. And is that something that do you practice or do you, what's your experience with it? Well, um, I have attempted to do <laughs> meditation. It is a very difficult thing. Especially so because I, I think I'm always on the go, go, go. And for somebody like me who's always on the go, 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 meditation is a necessary thing. And so I have tried to incorporate. It, it took effort. Um, it takes the same yes. amount of discipline to get to the finish line of a race. Yes. And I schedule time in my day where I am cognizant of being still. Of, of forcing myself at the beginning, it is forcing yourself to Absolutely. be quiet, to be still, to have that time. But it is so, the payoff is huge because I'm sitting here at 38 and I tell you, uh, Jess, I feel that I can handle anxiety in a way that I couldn't 10 years ago or even five years ago. And I, that's, that's an incredible feeling for me. And yeah, absolutely. Anxiety still exists in my life. Absolutely. I, I, there's plenty of things to get anxious about and I have self-doubt and all that stuff, but being able to step away from that through meditation, through things like yoga is, is immensely helpful. 
And so there's a misconception out there mm. that, well, I can't meditate because my mind's too busy. Right. So what would you say to some? I mean, knowing them, you know the mind very well. Mm -hmm. And so what is the role of the mind? Well, I, you tell me. Well, I, I think meditation <laughs> is literally doing nothing. Yeah, physically right? doing nothing. Physically doing nothing. Yeah. And is it that your mind is completely quiet during the meditation? Because for me, that's impossible. Yeah, for me, that's impossible. <laughs> yeah. There's always stuff. But I think there's ways that you could maybe turn down the volume on the mind, maybe focusing on things like your breath and your breathing mm -hmm. or focusing on one specific thing, which is immensely difficult. You know, somebody tells me, gosh, I meditated for 60 minutes. I'm floored. I can barely do it for 90 seconds. <laughs> um, so your question was, what goes on in the mind? Well, yeah, like when, when people say, well, I can't do it because I can't quiet my mind. Right. And I guess I want, I know what my take is on the mind. Yes. Like I always say, never try and stop your mind. It's not about stopping your mind because... Yes. Because what is your mind designed to do? It's designed that's to I'm think. Asking, it's, yeah. <clears throat> it's designed to think. And that's, that's what separates us from all the other species is that we learn and it takes us very little to learn something. And then we remember this. Um, but you said something very important too. It's the things that you say to yourself. Well, I can't meditate. Well, if you say that to yourself, right, the self-talk example, you're probably not going to be as successful or you're probably not going to be able to do it. To reframe that, is, well, I'll give it a shot. It may be difficult, but I'll try. And maybe I can. That's not being 180 degrees, so well, I'm going to be this, the world's best meditator. No, no, no. That's also unrealistic, and you're likely not to believe that. But you, and it's not a competitive sport. And it's not a competitive <laughs> sport. But what you say is, okay, well, I'll give meditation a shot because I've heard that it's good for me. And okay, and maybe then you'll find that it actually is good for you. No. I think when, when you're saying that, when people say, I can't meditate, I think what they're, what they're really saying is, I don't want to meditate. And that's yes. the choice that they have that we're trying to, everything is a choice. Yes. And what they're choosing is they don't want to meditate. They don't want to sit still. They don't want to be in yes. that space of quiet with their own mind because yeah. they don't know what they're going to find out. Exactly. That, and I think in this fast-paced world that we live in, people may view that as a waste of time. Well, I'm oh, just sitting I there. certainly did. Yeah. I avoided it at all costs. And yeah. I'll tell you, I had a very, like, aha moment in my life when we were living here in Boulder. And I was a massage therapist, so I was learning embodiment. And, okay, like, if, if I, if I, and I was very, very into what I, I did. And, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm still board certified and all of that and I ha I haven't been practicing for a couple of years but I'm finding like I'm getting I'm, which makes BJ really excited I think that I'm like back kind of feel massage. like it's pulling me <laughs> back in I don't know why and maybe it's because I've spent all these years studying meditation and maybe that with the massage is just going to be really great healing for people but when I was, uh, you know, here at Boulder College of Massage Therapist, which is, I mean, massage therapy, which was an amazing school, mm -hmm. it was presence, it yes. was embodiment, you know, like feel in my body what I want them to feel in their body. So yes. if I'm tense and like, I want to be the best massage therapist, which is how I was at the mm -hmm. beginning, then I'm going to give them all that tension. So I'm learning all that stuff and it's really starting to tick and transform me. But like you said, like it's, it's a process, but yes. I was still like, thank you very much. Yes. Save the meditation. It's not for me. And so I had this moment when we lived here in Boulder where I remember I was home alone and I was in the living room and I had done all my things on my list to do. Mm -hmm. And 
I kind of stopped and I was like, well, sit down. And I sat down and it was like, it was like I was in, in a, the seat was, it was like somebody pulled the ejection lever and I jumped back up. And when I jumped back up, I happened to find myself looking right in a mirror. I mean, this just couldn't have been more perfectly done by the universe. <laughs> and I looked in the mirror and it just came, it came to me. I was, it's like, I am the girl that can't sit down. I can't sit down. And it all came in like, oh my gosh, but I am the first person to say, that person can't even sit down. They're so stressed out. They always have to go, 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 go. And so I get it. Like when people say, I can't, I don't want to meditate. Like I can't stop my mind. It makes me, like my mother says, you know, meditation can cause anxiety for people. I'm like, yeah, it can because you're finally still. Right. Right. And that's difficult. Yeah. And the tornado that's been going on inside has a chance to show itself. Yes, absolutely. And so I think this ties in perfectly with athletes. You know, there's no, there's no mistake that, you know, I've done Ironman triathlons, like to go out there and not only get those endorphins going and get myself so physically exhausted that, oh, now I can sleep at night, but also proving like, Hey, look, look what I did. I did this. Like I'm worthy. I'm worthy of this. And so I, I think that it goes hand in hand sometimes. I'm not going to say it's every single athlete out there, but this, this, um, it's the going, going, going. And how does that weigh on our nervous systems and our Mm -hmm. mental capabilities over, over long-term? Right. It's like that's the cycle of the the Strava, the social media, right. the constant competing, the, the the Facebook groups of all these events, like every it's all all this energy is yes. like feeding it, feeding yes. it, feeding it. Yes, and they're constantly one upping, and I, I you can sense that energy from everything, and it's just just step step away, step away, step away. I feel like all these groups need to have like one sort of moderator that can see from above and I'll be the moderator put some, <laughs> yes. put some quiet quiet we're gonna pu- we're gonna take Strava offline for 12 hours <laughs> yes. that's yes. what everybody really needs yeah. right they yeah. need that stuff to yeah. be pulled away and so it shows up you know in sports it will show up in in performance with anxiety and fear but it's never it, there's always a bigger story. Yes. Right? Have you found that? Like, there's a, there's always a bigger story behind it. And if somebody, and again, like, because everyone's so different, we're just going to talk blanket, um, you know, and you touched upon this earlier. But this idea of, um, I'm kind of going into something else now because I'm thinking about the unworthiness factor. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you see a common tie between that and performance sports? Oh sure, sure. I mean, when you say the unworthiness factor, that's that's a that's a belief, mm. you know. And if it's a core belief, to use a, a cognitive behavioral term, a CBT term, then yeah, that's going to be a barrier. That's going to be an obstacle, you know. If I'm an unworthy individual, then my goodness, I'm a piece of trash, perhaps. And you can do as many, you can cross as many finish lines as you want, and you'll never be good enough. Right. So you I'm know, not supposed to get the time I want because I wasn't. I'm not right. worthy enough. Right. Or I was lucky. Mm. Or, oh, yeah. or they minimize the accomplishment. And so-and-so didn't show up that day. <clears throat> so-and-so didn't show up. The course was short. We had a favorable uh, tailwind. Right. Yeah. So how do, we, how do we all, as working with athletes, how, and, and people listening, what can they, they, 
they do to start changing that self-talk? Well, first of all, is an awareness. And then second of all, is to start challenging it. To say now, wait a second, and this is all from 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 CBT is is how realistic is this really? Because oftentimes people tend to be extreme and extreme in their thinking. Well, I'm the most worthless person on the planet, or I'm the worst athlete, or I'm the worst competitor at this event, which is likely not true. And so to begin to challenge that and to say, now wait a minute, like you said, <clears throat> BJ, take a step back and say, and 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 reassess, is this really valid? And oftentimes, it's empowering to know that it's no, it's, it's not true. It's not based in reality. So why would I choose to believe this if it's not based in reality? I live in the real world. Uh, and that's the way it starts, is to begin to, 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 to challenge these things, to not let yourself really get away with this line of thinking or these beliefs. Okay, if you feel like you're a failure, well... Let's look at that. Let's be vulnerable and say, okay, well, let's really dissect that. Let's explore that. Where is that coming from? And begin to gently challenge that. And for some people, that's very, very difficult because it's an ingrained belief that they've had perhaps sometimes even years or decades. And suddenly you're challenging their belief system. That could be a very scary thing. And it not, it's not going to happen, it may not happen immediately. Like it oh, may no. take time to uncover what that... It takes time. Like yeah. everything that's, I think, Vijay, worthwhile, it's a process. And for it to, to... Change can come about quickly, but I think to maintain that change does take some time. And people need to be, I would say, not need to be, but, you know, patience is, is a wonderful <laughs> thing. <clears throat> and so with patience comes, I think, some good positive results. Um, but it, it, there's nothing more empowering, I think, to witness somebody come to this realization, well, gosh, I'm not, I'm not worthless. I'm not a loser. I'm actually, I'm actually, you know, worth something. Yeah. And I'm not an egomaniac for thinking that. Oh, no. Oh, no. Because it can go the other way. Yes. You know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. It could go the other way, which is not healthy either. No. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I've it, been there too. And you see both sides. <laughs> Do you have any... Uh, do you have any success stories in general that you can share or is this from, from my personal from, life or, or from any um, oh, people sure. that you've helped? Oh, like, sure. You know, you know, it's, it's the most rewarding, uh, for me, part of this job is to, to first of all, witness change, to witness, you know, growth or to witness somebody reaching his or her goals. Um, but when somebody says to me, you know, Dr. or Merrick, you really helped me. That to me is such an unbelievable feeling. And it's, it's, uh, you can't put a monetary value on it. It's just an unbelievable thing for a human being to say. And then I sit there and I think, my goodness, I, I was able to kind of be part of this person's story for, you know, a short period in their life. And that's a, that's a wonderful feeling. Um, and, you know, people's lives change, you know, and it, it's wonderful to see them change for the better. So... But who's going to make that change? Oh, you have to make the change. You have to make the change. There's no magic pill. There's no magic. You know, you could see the 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 four the the world's renowned expert on whatever master therapist. But if you're unwilling to put in the work and you are unwilling to to really kind of be part of this process, nothing's going to work for you. You have to be the one. I'm merely a facilitator. You know. Um, 
So, but you have to be willing to invest. And once that's, that's what I ask of people. I don't necessarily ask them to believe in what I'm saying or to convince them. And no, no, no. I ask that you come in with a, a, an open mind and just a smidge, just a smidge of hope. Cause I could work with a smidge of hope. <laughs> even if, even if it's less than 1%, at least we got a little bit of hope so we could, maybe that, that could catch fire. That's great. That's awesome. I think that's a great place to end. Yeah, I think it is. We already did an hour. It goes like that, Wonderful. right? Wonderful. Thank you for awesome. having me. Merrick, thank you so sure, much. Sure, my it's pleasure. Great Merrick, to, thank you so much. I know I know you from this life or another, <laughs> so it's great to reconnect. I'm just going to say yes, that. Yes, thank you. But I think maybe we uh, we shared the race course before. I'm sure we, we have. we did some math and for yes. sure we've been on the course. And for our athletes and listeners out there, if they want to connect with you, how, yes. what's the best way to yes. connect? So I'm a licensed psychologist in both California and Colorado, so I could see folks in California or Colorado. Um, I have a website. It's uh, mdvorakphd.com. Um, you could just find me on the web. Google my name. and uh, Check out his athlinks. Yes. You on Strava? <laughs> <laughs> no, no comment about the Strava part. <laughs> Merrick is super open and articulate. I hope you guys really enjoyed this show. I loved it. It was such a joy to receive his openness about moments of his own self-doubt. And I respect him so much for his willingness to be vulnerable so that the truth may be shown. And when I think about him opening up to his clients, I don't think about weakness. I think about connection. And that's truly what we all crave. We are hardwired to connect. And there is no person more important to connect with than ourselves. It's time, you guys, get out the mirror and take a deep look. There is so much chaos in the world and so much darkness right now, but don't let it get you down or on the defensive or fearful or negative. This only adds and feeds to the darkness. It's about finding calmness within it. And we do that by committing to sitting every day. And here's how you start. It's so freaking easy. With the sheet still on, take five completely patient breaths every morning and then move into your day.